Welcome to Inspired Caregiver with me, Michelle Magner. This is the podcast where people who are helping out their older family members come for information, tips, and inspiration on how to make their journey easier. Enjoy this episode of Inspired Caregiver. Well, hello. Hi, good morning. How are you? I'm doing really good. How are you? I'm great. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you too. It's been a while. It has been. (laughs) So do you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah. Yep. So I'm Allison. I um, am currently a social worker for St. Croix Hospice. I work out of the Lincoln office. Um, I... I guess a little bit of educational background. I got my bachelor's at Concordia University in Seward um, in psychology and behavioral science. And then I got my master's in social work at UNO, which is what brought me to Omaha, which is where I met you. Yeah. And I um, got a graduate certificate in gerontology as well. And now I am currently a licensed clinical social worker and licensed mental health practitioner. And how long have you been with St. Croix? It has been three and a half years. It's gone by really fast. (laughs) It has gone by fast. It does not feel that long. And your background prior was in long-term care. Yes. Yep. Yep. I had started out my first facility that I worked at was Brookstone Village. Um, And I was still in my master's program. So I was working part-time in the life enrichment program. Mm -hmm. And then Once I graduated with my master's, there was a full-time long-term care social work position at Brookstone Meadows and Elkhorn. So um, then I switched over and was there for about two years. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation about hospice today. I am regularly surprised that there's still so much misinformation about hospice and confusion and fear really about the services and and what can be provided. So I'm just, I have a list of questions based on what I've heard from caregivers um, to just, for us to just talk about and chat about. So the first question is like, what is exactly hospice? And I know there's also palliative care. And Mm -hmm. so what's the difference between the two? Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of miscommunication. Um, and I think that the, the words palliative care and hospice care often get interchanged as if they're the same, but they're completely different. Okay. Um, so, um, if you're looking at Medicare benefits, so palliative care really is nothing in addition to what a person would normally be getting as far as care. They can still do curative treatment if they want. Um, they can forgo curative treatment if they want. They they get to make the rules, I guess you could say. There's no rules by Medicare of which they have to follow regarding what they can or can't do in regards to their care. Okay. Um, and so palliative is kind of a route um, that people can take if they don't really want to forgo, um, aggressive treatment, but they don't qualify for hospice. So in order to qualify for hospice, and these are based on Medicare guidelines, 
they have to have a primary diagnosis that deems them to have six months or less of life should their disease continue to pro progress in the same direction. Um, and with that comes a lot of benefits and a lot of people aren't aware of all the benefits that hospice actually has. And it's all completely covered 100% by Medicare. So hospice, um, includes a medical director. Ours is Dr. Hoberman. He is, um, a geriatric specialist. It includes a nurse. It includes a social worker a chaplain, music therapy, massage therapy, volunteers, as well as AIDS. Um, so it's, it's really a new addition to this person's team and part of their care. Um, so hospice, I always explain, is in addition to, whereas palliative, there's no addition. Things continue to be the same. Um, and they kind of get to pick and choose what they do and don't want to do. Hospice, we have to work within the realm of the Medicare regulations, um, such as, you know, not progressive treatment. So like dialysis, chemotherapy, those types of things. Um, the focus is really just on quality of life mm -hmm. and comfort. Um, so... Yes, you can have a quality of life and comfort in palliative care, but it's not going to have that Medicare benefit that gives you this extra team of people. Okay. Makes sense. So when I think of palliative care, I think of someone who is maybe going through chemo and they're experiencing regular pain mm -hmm. um, or maybe unsure of the course of their treatment. Is mm -hmm. Would that... Is that true for a more palliative care approach? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, and Medicare, so Medicare sets that six month or less rule. So there's a lot of people that choose to go the palliative route rather than the curative okay. that can, can go much longer than that. And that's when hospice isn't quite appropriate yet for them. Um, the hospice benefit is more designed for that six months or less time period. Okay. I love how you mentioned quality of life and comfort. And I think what's so interesting is, isn't that what we all want every day mm -hmm. under normal circumstances, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just, I was just thinking like if, if really medically your body is, you know, a functioning system and if doctors are saying, listen, we've really exhausted our options, um, why wouldn't someone want to have hospice immediately involved to provide that comfort and quality of life? Sure. Why, I mean, people are so afraid of it. What do you, what are your oh. thoughts? Absolutely. I think um, at the very beginning of this, you mentioned the word fear. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a huge piece of it. I also think lack of education on what hospice is and what it means is huge. Um, we're living in 2021. We still do admissions where the family or patient think we're there to give an injection to give someone death. Right. And 
And we explain, you know, that's what's called physician assisted suicide. It's not legal in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. um, that is not what hospice is. Um, but it's amazing that people still think that. Um, or people think that um, we over medicate, you know, we provide a ton of medication or morphine that basically um, snows a person and then they fall asleep and then they pass. Um, so basically different ways in which the hospice team controls when a patient passes. And so it takes a lot of education and a lot of reassurance to explain, we are there to walk beside them on their journey. Mm -hmm. We do not have the power to quicken or slow down that patient's process. Their body is gonna to continue to do what they wanna do. We're there to keep them comfortable and give them the highest quality of life um, along the way for as long as possible. And, you know, I think there's also a financial misconception. People think, oh, well, you know, you, you got your patient, you got your money, so now you want them dead. That is not, financially how hospice <laughs> works. Um, we, our goal always is to have a patient on for at least six months. That's always mm -hmm. our goal because it gives our team an opportunity to get to know them, for them to get to know us, to build that trust, that relationship, mm -hmm. that rapport with both the patient and the family. And all that takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And right. so the longer we have with a patient, the more time we have to develop that trust and respect for one another. And then when they are declining, we have that foundation and they know that they're being taken care of. They recognize the faces that are coming into their homes. Um, and so it just makes the pro the whole process a lot more meaningful and um, fulfilling for both the patient and the family. And my understanding is that like the average length of stay in hospice care is pretty short. Like people are not mm -hmm. taking advantage of the program. And mm -hmm. by taking advantage, I just mean utilizing your services the way they yes. be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know for St. Croix, the most recent statistic I read for our company anyways, um, is four months is an average stay. But I will tell you more and more often, especially since um, COVID has entered our country, um, it's very, very common. We'll have an admission and they'll pass away within the next couple of days. Yeah. Um, and I do see that happening more and more. And I think people wait too long. They, they, they think that hospice is for that very, very end of life without seeing the benefit of coming on six months ahead of time. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's something we're constantly educating facility staff on, especially of, you know, don't wait to give us a referral because then we have more time with them and can build that relationship and report with them and their family. And it just makes the whole experience better. Um, but I, I do think there is this misconception that hospice is for those last few days or few weeks, and it, it really doesn't have to be that way. You can be providing care and comfort for a much longer period of time. So exactly. it it can be tricky to figure out the right levels of medication to provide that comfort, right? Oh yeah. And it's a lot of trial and error because everybody's so different. 
you know, um, especially if you're looking at different dementia diagnoses or different cancers, um, you have to look at all those comorbid um, conditions, you know, if they have heart conditions, liver conditions, kidney conditions, um, all of those, you know, affected person differently and each combination makes a perfect person look very different. And right. so, and the tricky thing with medication is it can take a solid week or two before you see the result of a change of medication. And so it is a lot of waiting mm -hmm. <laughs> just to kind of see the results. I know that our medical director is really big on making one change at a time. Okay. So that way, if it has an adverse reaction, we actually know where that reaction is coming from. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, and that's something we can change and adjust. If you make four medication changes and we have a, a negative symptom, we, we don't know out of the four, which one that's coming from. So we always try to take it slow um, and encourage our patients to be patient um, in that process, because each individual is so different, their bodies are going to react differently. They're going to need different doses. So it's really just kind of um, trial and error on our end to kind of figure out just the right combination to keep them comfortable without them being too lethargic. And yeah. I think that's usually patients goals and families goals is finding that fine line of where they're comfortable, but they're not sleeping all the time. Right. <laughs> and, and that combination looks different from person to person. So it is. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, and when you said that people wait until like the very last moments or, you know, days, I frequently hear people saying, I don't know when to call. Like, I don't know when it's appropriate to engage hospice services because a doctor isn't necessarily telling people, hey, you may want to consider looking at being admitted to a hospice program, right? So yeah. what would be like, we can maybe speak very briefly to true end of life symptoms, like breathing mm -hmm. changes and stuff, but like, what would be something beforehand that at home caregivers can be looking for that would maybe trigger the flag? Sure, sure. So we always say, you know, it's never too soon to pursue it. We can always have a nurse come out, do an evaluation, see if they're appropriate or not. If we feel it's too soon, we're going to be completely honest with them about that. Um, and so I always say, rule of thumb, just call. Yeah. We can always come out and do an evaluation if they don't qualify yet. It's a waste of one hour of your time, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, things to look for are typically changes in activity of daily living. So if a person is becoming more dependent and dressing, feeding themselves, toileting themselves, um, meal preparation, mobility, transferring, um, a, a decline in any of those kind of raise, uh, raises a red flag. Um, also changes in appetite um, or refusing medications. Um, those are all things that, you know, any, really any kind of decline um, should, we should start paying attention to what, what's going on. Is this something acute? Like maybe it's a UTI or, mm -hmm. you know, some type of infection or virus um, and it'll be, it'll be temporary and they'll get better or, is this related to 
a diagnosis like, um, you know, um, heart failure or a cancer, um, something that we can expect is con going to continue to get worse. Um, and it, I mean, there is really no magic formula of how do you know it's the right time, right. but I would say, yeah, just, um, kind of that general decline in what they're able to do for themselves, their independence, their appetite. Um, and then sometimes it's the, the will, the will to live. Right. Um, so it is kind of an emotional decision as well. Some people are just, you know, very satisfied with the life that they've had. Um, and they don't want to be on all this medication anymore. They don't want to do therapy anymore. They just want to be comfortable. Um, so sometimes, uh, it's, it's an emotional decision that makes, um, them eligible as well. And when somebody is in that headspace, we do see decline because they're not wanting to be as independent or walk or bear right. weight like they used to. Um, so that that's an option as well. But I would say rule of thumb, you know, if you're noticing changes, a nurse can always come out and do, do an evaluation and say, you know, it's too soon. But if you start noticing this, this or this, give us a call again. Um, and then it opens the door. It, you've already right. had that initial meeting. Um, maybe there's a better sense of um, education of what what hospice means and the services that would be provided to you. Um, so it, it doesn't ever hurt to call too early. Okay. I'll never forget with one of my grandmothers, because I was the primary family caregiver for both of my grandmothers over the course of that. Yes. years, um, she went to the hospital for an issue and they did this battery of tests on her and she was 96 years old and I went to pick her up and like they had just completed a procedure and she looked and she was very sharp very articulate and she looked at me and she said I'm done hmm. I'm not coming back sure. here again sure I don't want to do this anymore and it wasn't yeah. she was saying I'm done with life you know she was sure. just saying I've lived a really good life and I, I'm, I'm feeling good about where things are and I just don't want to be put on the rack, so to speak, to, be, to figure <laughs> out what and why da, da, da. So, yeah, you know, she went back to her nursing home and mm -hmm. I think she lived quite a bit longer, many more mm -hmm. months. And we did mm -hmm. engage hospice services with both of my grandmothers. Good. Good. Um, so that was a blessing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, decision, you know, absolutely. And it's great when patients can make their own decisions. And I would tell you probably 90 to 95% of the admissions that we get, it's because of after a hospital stay, Yeah, um, they had such a traumatic experience and they are poked and pried and you know, especially if they're in their 80s or 90s and they have that fulfillment and their peace in their hearts about their life. And they're just like, you know, I just don't want to ever go through that again. Um, right. And that's kind of a difference between hospice and palliative again is when you're on hospice, you know, we're really reassuring patients. We can provide all the care that you need right here in your home, whether that be assisted living, skilled, your house, your 
daughter's house, you know, we can provide that at home um, without you having to go to the hospital again. And a lot of the time, most of the time, um, that last hospital stay is kind of what makes people turn to hospice. And say, I'm just done. Yep. Yep. So one of the things I recently saw in a caregiver chat room was the daughter was surprised that basically hospice hadn't moved in with them. So what is... (laughs) (laughs) reasonable expectation of how frequently you're going to see people like how often are people coming to the home to provide care give baths that sort of thing because as humans we eliminate waste daily so Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering like is that a part of the services is like every single day someone's going to come and help clean up or how does that work Yeah. So we always explain that we are, we are their team or their hospice team, but we are intermittent. They need to have continuous care, whether that be from a family member, you know, like a spouse or a child, um, or that be from facility staff, you know, no hospice team is, is equipped with a huge group of staff like a facility is. And Mm -hmm. so we always set up the expectation of, you know, the patient needs continuous 24 seven care. We're in addition to that. So when we do visits, we're usually there for about an hour. Um, nurses, sometimes it's longer, especially if the patient's uncomfortable and they're trying to get pain under control. Um, but I would say on average, most of our visits were there for about an hour. So we always explain, you know, when you have one or two people coming um, throughout the day, a couple of hours in a day, you know, that's not enough to care for a patient. Um, you need to have continuous care. And then we are in addition to that. So um, I would say on average, most of our patients do get seen five times a week, I would say. Okay. Um, the only time we see patients over the weekend and on holidays is if um, they're on what we call our voyage program, um, which means we, we feel like they have 14 days or less. And then in that case, we um, increase frequency for all of our disciplines and we're seeing patients more, more looking like that continuous care. And I can dive into that a little bit later, but um, I would say on average, usually they get a visit Monday through Friday, at least by one or more disciplines. I know our aides usually come and see them two or three times a week, nurse sees them two or three times a week. And then on top of that is massage and music and volunteer social worker and chaplain. So okay. um. Yeah. So, I mean, it's frequent, but it is not um, a continuous care and all hospice teams are designed like that. We're much smaller. We're not staffed like a facility to be able to provide that continuous care. Okay. And I actually have listeners. I have someone in Germany. I have someone in Canada. So there you're speaking obviously about what St. Croix provides and would different hospice companies potentially provide different things? And then how do you know which company to hire? Yeah. So I, I mean, I can only speak to the state of Nebraska. Um, and it might, I, it might even be, I might even be able to generalize it to the United States. Um, I, I am not aware that any hospice company can provide that continuous care with the exception of 
our voyage program. I'm not aware of other companies outside of St. Croix that have a program like our voyage program. It was something that St. Croix created to kind of make St. Croix stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of going back to my history of long-term care, I worked with, oh, probably five, six, seven different hospice companies in my time at, at Brookstone Village and Brookstone Meadows, because I was the social worker referring to them. And so I got to see an array of different companies. And I will say they all really truly did look about the same. You know, they had a nurse, they had an aide, they had a chaplain, they had a social worker. Um, some had music and massage. I would say most did not. Mm-hmm. Um, some had volunteers, most did not. Um, so the team can look different from company to company. Yeah. I would encourage families to get the most bang for your buck. I mean, it's it's free. Yeah. Might as well um, go with a company that offers the most support. Um, and I think that picking a company that has a great bereavement program is huge as well. That's the program that starts after a patient passes, um, providing that ongoing support, because when a person passes a whole new journey begins and you don't want to be alone for that, either having a team of people to support you, check on you. I think that's equally important. Um, so I would say looking into bereavement programs and picking a company is important as well. Okay. Um, but I'm um, going back to the voyage program. Um, so that that is something that I said, you know, starts when we're looking at two weeks or less of life for a patient. Um, and what that looks like um, to our team is a nurse is the one that initiates that. She sends out an all team email, says this patient is on the voyage program. And then what we do is We set up a schedule of um, one hour blocks from eight to five, Mm -hmm. and we all volunteer and pick times for us to cover. Wow. Um, And so our goal, of course, is to cover from eight to five. Um, We're a very, very small team. St. Croix is a small company. There's, I haven't counted it up, but we're probably under 20 people um, total. Um, So we are a very small team, but I would say most days we're able to cover, I would say at least six hours um, consistently while someone's on that voyage program. And we just think that focus on that very end of life is really important even in facilities that have restrictions, families are usually allowed in at that point. So being able to sit alongside the family member mm-hmm. as their loved one is declining, being able to um, actively listen, to provide reassurance, education, support, you know, in that time period is more important than any other time. So we want to both keep um, you know, the patient comfortable, extra eyes and ears on them to make sure they're comfortable and pain is being managed, but also providing support to the family that's typically present at that time. Okay. That totally makes sense. For people that are in the home, what kind of equipment do you provide or is covered? Yeah, a lot. Uh, People are usually very shocked by how much we can do. So I'm, and I'm sure I'm going to forget something, but I'll try to (laughs) try to spout them out. So, 
Um, with the bathroom, you know, we do bedside commodes, we do mm -hmm. toilet razors, um, we provide um, toileting wipes. Um, as far as bathing, we provide, um, you know, little basins and um, shampoo caps and uh, uh, bed bath wipes, chuck pads, depends, um, gloves. What else? We provide lifts. If somebody needs a lift, we can provide a Hoyer or an easy stand lift. Wow. If somebody needs help with transfers. Um, gate belts? Do you have gate um, belts? I don't know that we, you know what? I am not sure. I couldn't say either way on that one. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot cheaper than a, a lift. So yeah. I would hope so. Yeah, for sure. People can just like go get one at the pharmacy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I would think that we do, but I am not 100% sure on that. Okay. But um, yeah, it is a lot. Like hospital beds, like those are things that people would buy independently. Hospital beds are covered. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. Yep. And then as well as um, wheelchairs, transport chairs, special cushions for wheelchairs or transport chairs or recliners like Rojo cushions. We also provide specialty mattresses. So if they need like a memory foam or an air mattress, um, we cover that as well. Um, and we, we do provide different specialty items if needed, like a bariatric bed, okay. if they need something wider, an extra long bed, if they're really tall, or if they need a, um, a tilt and space wheelchair, we provide that as well. Um, so we always kind of um, evaluate what their needs are going to be upon that initial visit, and then we order all of that right away. We always say, you know, if you don't end up using it, then we'll pick it back up, but we'd okay. rather order what, what you might need and have it there available. Um, and then if it's just taking up space, we can get rid of it. But um, oxygen concentrator is another example of that. You know, a person might admit onto our services and not have any oxygen needs, but if they have a condition where shortness of breath is gonna be one of their biggest symptoms, we wanna have oxygen in the home to help um, maintain that comfort. Um, so that's another thing we usually order upon admission for all of our patients. If they don't end up using it, we take it out, but at least they have it in case they need it. That's so good. That's so much yeah. stuff. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But is. most of, I mean, I would say much, much of the time it is utilized. So it's great yeah. that hospice provides it. Yeah. And walkers and canes as well. I told you there's going to be things that yeah. <laughs> I'll forget, yeah. but, um, yeah, it, it is, it, it's a lot. And, um, on top of that, Medicare will cover all, um, medications as long as it is related to comfort. Okay. Um, so they won't cover things such as, um, you know, if it's related to the primary hospice diagnosis, like for example, if they're on hospice because of a heart condition, they're not going to cover curative medications um, mm -hmm. for the heart. But um, as far as, you know, whether it be antidepressant, anti-anxiety um, or pain medication, you know, all of that is covered um, by Medicare as well. So for most patients, it, it covers 100% of their medication that they before were paying out of pocket for. So that's another benefit. Okay. All right, I have two more questions. <laughs> 
it's not bad. This is going fast. Questions. Yeah, so many questions. Um, That's great. How how do I initiate the conversation? Like, if I can see that my family member isn't doing well, mm-hmm. how do I initiate the conversation with them? I think another scenario really is when the kids are not ready to embrace the concept of where someone is in their medical diagnosis. And um, so how do we get the conversation going? Yeah, and I would say that's probably the hardest part (laughs) is being that person to bring it up. Um, In long-term care, it was always me. That was always my role. Um, And so it was something that I um, build a confidence with and a comfortability with, but I would say for the average person, it is a very uncomfortable position to be put in. And I really empathize with people on that. So um, you had mentioned earlier, you know, about making sure we're educating um, doctors about having that conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the times that's what family members and patients need is they have that primary physician that they've known for years that they trust that says, you know, have you ever thought about hospice? Mm -hmm. Um, and just mentioning it, um, usually will kind of get people to start to think about it and be more open to it. Um, and we do a lot of education in hospitals and in doctor's offices about hospice so that we can help train them on how to approach that. Um, but again, even though it's 2021, mm-hmm. um, we have a lot of doctors do not feel comfortable having that conversation. Right. Um, so if you as a family member are noticing these changes, I would just say, you know, I've worked with hospice before. I, I always say, start with your experience. Okay. So you've worked with hospice with your grandmothers. Mm-hmm. Um, you've, you've seen the benefits. You, it's a program that you believe in that you feel like could benefit them. I would always start with that. You know, we use this for my grandma and it was just so nice to have an extra team checking on her eyes and ears on her, having another medical doctor that specializes in this. And, you know, I just feel like maybe that's something they could benefit from. Um, I think that's always a good place to start is just coming from a place of positivity mm-hmm. like this has been my experience and it was great um that always kind of puts people at ease um a lot of our families have we are their first hospice experience um mm-hmm. most of the time and so we're setting that expectation so it is a lot of education because they have no idea what to expect unless we explain it to them so right. kind of you providing education on what it is, um, I think would go a long ways as well. Um, I think working with families is probably the hardest part of my job. Mm-hmm. Um, families are a lot harder than patients, if I'm being honest. <laughs> there's a lot to um, navigate there. Like there's some really complex family situations. Yes. Yeah. And yes, difficult family dynamics. Um, yeah. And You know, what I always tell myself is that most of their emotions are stemmed from grief and that makes it easier to work through as long as you're in that mindset of this is just a part of their grieving process, Um, whether it be 
anger or depression or bargaining, you know, you can, you can kind of see things from their point of view. If you're, if you're thinking about, well, what if this was my loved one? And so I think having a conversation where you're very sensitive to that, um, and very in tune with their emotions is going to make the conversation go much better too. Um, it makes them feel that you're on their side, that Mm -hmm. you have the same goals of quality of life. Um, and that you're on the same team and that you're recognizing, you know, where they're at from an emotional standpoint, but, um, sometimes you just need that outside perspective, that person that's going to think from a logical standpoint and say, Hey, these are the things I'm seeing. Is this something you've ever considered? Right. And I think the twist I would put on that, if you're someone that is caregiving for someone at home right now, and you are listening to this episode with your loved one, you can say, I just need more help. Like I need a team of people that can help support you and provide you the best quality of life that we can give you and to help support me right now. And Mm -hmm. in terms of family, keeping that hat on of we're all going through a grieving process. So if your siblings are not in agreement with you, or maybe you're a a child and it's a parent Mm -hmm. um, who's also involved in the caregiving process and they're not quite agreeing with you, just to keep remembering that they have a grieving process that they're going through. Mm -hmm. And again, talking about how can we give them, the person, the best quality of life. Mm -hmm. Uh, while they're here with us. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a lot of the times people um, or families will say, well, don't use the H word. Don't tell them that you're here from hospice. And the way we introduce ourselves as we say, we're just here for extra help. We're just here to be extra eyes and ears to make sure you're comfortable. We don't even have to mention the word hospice. They don't even need to know why we're there, who we are, but to know that we're there to help. And we are, I mean, that is our role. And I think, um, a lot of the times we are having a conversation with family members about, we want you to continue to be the spouse. We want you to continue to be the daughter or the son. Mm -hmm. And the only way to help you stay in that role is to provide you that extra help. Let us be the nurse. Let us be the aide. Um, and, um, explaining that to patients too is helpful. Cause it's like, we're here. You, you see how worn out your wife is, mm-hmm. you know, we're here to help her. Right. We're here to take stuff off of her plate. Um, and so taking that approach, yeah, is a great way to do it. Um, cause it just kind of puts in perspective, you know, we are a team we're working together and being a caregiver is one of the hardest roles anybody can be in. It okay. truly is. Yeah. And so it is exhausting. And I do believe that patients and families recognize that. And so knowing that there's an extra team of people that's happy and willing to be involved to help out, you know, they're usually hopefully pretty receptive to that. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. Any final thoughts or words of wisdom for people that are at home caring for a loved one? And maybe it's time to start having this thought process or conversation, just any words you can offer them? Yeah, I would just offer words of hope. I think that 
when we discuss hospice, people feel this sense of loss of hope and that is not what it should be. Um, we are about quality of life and it's interesting how many patients we see actually improve once we take off all these extra medications, once we have one doctor that's managing the medications um, and we just simplify everything we very, very often see improvement. Wow. Um, and sure, of course, sometimes that improvement is followed by, is followed by decline, but you know that they're having a better of quality of life because they're not bogged down. They're not as lethargic. They're more alert. Um, and so I, and also, you know, hospice is not a necessarily a final decision people graduate off of hospice all the time. Such a good point. Yeah. And sometimes it is because they have all this extra attention, all this extra care, medications that weren't needed are taken off. Mm -hmm. They see an improvement and they continue to improve. And then they are off hospice and no longer qualify. That is, it's not out of the realm of possibilities. We've had patients that have admitted that we thought had a couple of days they looked terrible. Yeah. And then months later, they're still with us and they're doing so much better. So I would just encourage people to recognize that hospice is not a loss of hope, um, that there is still a lot of hope to be had in improvement or with an increase in quality of life or um, sometimes even increased time. We've We've done statistics where We've had, we've measured patients' um, uh, length of life based on, you know, if they were or weren't on hospice and mm-hmm. evidence has shown if somebody's on hospice and they're getting that individualized care, they live longer. Wow. And so it's actually a way to give you more time with your loved one and not just that, but quality time where they're feeling better. Right. So um So I I guess that would be my final words to caregivers is that don't ever lose hope because it's always there. That's beautiful. Well, thank you. I think this was awesome. Well, good. I I think we (laughs) covered a lot of having me. (laughs) Huh? Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. I think we covered a lot of territory and hopefully can be sharing the right information for people. Yes. I think, you know, knowledge is power. Yes. And, um, the more knowledge we have, the better we feel about making our decisions. So it's just about education, education, education. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was so good to see you. You too.